May the 1st, 2011. Lecture discussion number special request 8. Special request 8. Uh, if you know uh, what we're talking about in this case, it, this happens to be Judges 19, Judges 20, Judges 21, uh, which is the murder of the woman who was cut into pieces and sent throughout Israel and the war that was fought. And then, of course, the complement to that, 1 Samuel 11 and 1 Samuel 31. And before we begin, I want to mention an email that I received from Larry in Ohio. And let me hope I get this name right. It's Larry uh, Bernardinus, I hope. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Larry, um, uh, if I didn't, uh, please uh, excuse me. I'm not very good at uh, that kind of thing. But Larry sent us a question, and this is important. I'll give you this time mark in a minute to tell you why. He sent us a question uh, Tuesday, April 26, 2011, at 7.36 p.m., asking this. Could the story of Saul in 1 Samuel be part of the Eden to Sodom to Gebeah puzzle? So that was his question. Could the story of Saul in 1 Samuel be part of the Eden to Sodom to Gebeah puzzle? And Larry also kindly informed us that the audio file for April 10th, uh, for the April 10th lecture was missing on podbean.com and we're working to get that fixed. And if it's not fixed, then Kurt just heard it now on this one. And hopefully he'll notice that it was also missing on April the, the 10th. So, Kurt, that's my way of communicating with you uh, without using the phone. I hope it works. But to answer the question that Larry asked, absolutely yes. Saul in 1 Samuel 11, and I said this uh, a couple of weeks ago. Well, I shouldn't say that, but I said this earlier. Saul in 1 Samuel 11 is the complement to Judges 19, the Old Testament complement. In other words, I have Judges 19 and I have 1 Samuel 11 and they are side by side or they are interconnected with each other. And certainly Saul understood the significance of what he was doing in 1 Samuel with respect to Judges 19. And for those of you who are here for Judges 19, that's unforgettable history for the nation of Israel. I have this woman who is brutalized, ravished, it says, in a way that never had been seen in the nation of Israel, and her husband knows that something is horribly wrong, and he cuts her into pieces, her limbs into pieces, and he sends those limbs out as evidence of what happened to her, and the whole nation of Israel must then rise up to remove the evil that is from the sons of Belial in the city of Gebeah, or Jebeah, whichever you prefer. I kind of... I kind of give away my Gibeonite position there, and not everyone agrees with me on that. But in any event, the entire nation of Israel immediately recognizes that something has to be done when they got those pieces. Well, that happens again in 1 Samuel 11. The entire nation of, of Israel sees what Saul is doing, and they know that he is referencing Judges 19, this, whole, this horrible event that had never been seen since Egypt uh, for Israel, they recognize that Saul is referencing it, and that was an extraordinary thing. That is unforgettable history to Israel. There's no doubt about it. If you want to read it, uh, if you haven't heard it before, and I notice a few of you uh, are here for the first time, you need to read it to see what it is. It's unbelievable. I can't say it any better than that. And it has a Sodom connection that is very deep. And Saul, he knew that. 
he knew that everybody in Israel knew what those pieces were and what happened. And even today, it's not forgotten, by the way. If it happened today, everybody in Israel would know exactly what was going on again. If somebody were to do that today. And everyone knew, by the way, that saw the the Gabaean Benjamite. Consider that. The sons of Belial that committed the crime were from Gebeah, and they were Benjamites. And now I have Saul, a Gebeah Benjamite. He was assuming the role of the Levite master. And everyone in Israel, as soon as they got those pieces from Saul, knew that as well. And the irony and the impact would not have been missed by anybody. They all knew. And when the fact that Saul did it was an extraordinary thing to them. Now, I introduced Saul's relationship to Judges 19 on April 27th, Sunday at 4.35 p.m. Why do I bring that up? That was lecture discussion special request number seven. As of today, that lecture is not found on the Internet, not yet posted anywhere. So Larry in Ohio didn't know that I had done that. And Larry in Ohio, without knowing that I referenced 1 Samuel 11 and 1 Samuel 31, and I told you it was your class homework assignment, Larry in 2 Samuel 21, 13, and 14, Larry had already begun to collect all of that and connect them by himself. Yay for Larry. That's really cool. That's exactly what I'm trying to get you to do, isn't it? I want you to hear something and then run around the Bible and find it. You hear about a guy that cuts his wife up into 12 pieces and ships her around because of how she is murdered. And each piece is is evidence and every tribe looks at it and goes, whoa, and they all rise up as one. The next thing you should do after reading that is go everywhere else you can in Scripture and try to find it if it ever repeats because what are the odds that it repeats? God likes to do that, you know. He has some pieces here and some pieces here and He wants you to put them together. That's what Scripture is. That, by the way, proves that Scripture is written by who? God. Because... Who else could have done that? A man that lives and writes a book of the Bible and thousands of years later from another man who lives and writes a book of the Bible and the two fit together like a human body or an ecology, if you will, or an atmosphere or a orbit or a galaxy, whatever you want to see, the interconnection is extraordinary, can only be done by a supernatural mind. That, by the way, is proof that Scripture is God. The other, the other thing is, is if you find Christ on every page of the Old Testament, then you know it's Scripture. If you find its complement in the New Testament, then you know it's Scripture. That's how you determine whether or not Scripture is, in fact, uh, God-breathed. <coughs> we'll get to that in a minute as well, because I'm going to do that. But I was so proud of Larry for doing that. And every time I get one of these where someone has done that without any uh, prodding from me or any... Um, uh, that is just really exciting for me. So where Larry wins a T-shirt. Except we don't have any T-shirts. But, but if we did have a T-shirt, Larry would get a T-shirt, one of his choice. And of course, there would be how many choices? No, there would be three choices. Naturally, 
And the choices would be Cliffside Community Chapel, Anchorage, Alaska. Were you weird before you came to Cliffside? Or did Cliffside make you weird? Number two would be Cliffside Community Chapel, Anchorage, Alaska. Sorry, not really, fake sorry. The, other, the last one would be, and thank you for laughing, I'm repeating these jokes for the people on the internet always laugh for their sake. You've heard them all and you're sick of them, I get it. Number three would be Cliffside Community Chapel, Anchorage, Alaska. What is the most obvious of the obvious questions? Now, we have more than that, and maybe we'll sell more T-shirts uh, with more things. Um, I'm expecting, okay, I'm hoping huge demand. I'm hoping worldwide interest. I know there will be no Alaska purchasers of the T-shirt, so our only hope is the United Kingdom, Canada, and Australia. And Kansas, come on, Kansas, I need you. I was raised in Poplar Bluff, Missouri for, as a small child. I have an uncle and aunt that owned a farm in Poplar Bluff, so I'm hoping the Missouri and Kansas will, will see me as a favored son. In any event, unfortunately, hawking T-shirts might become a major part of the Cliffside Financial Stability Plan. And that's almost a shame, but I'll take it. Anyway. Larry, as soon as we get t-shirts, write us. We'll send you one. And thank you, Larry, for your kind words. There are kind words that I didn't read uh, for us. And, uh, and I hope you continue listening, Larry, and check out April 17th, though you don't need to now because you thought of it ahead of, of when you should. But I just wanted you to know that I was ahead of you, Larry. So I hope that's okay. Anyway, where were we? Last Sunday... And it isn't easy to stay ahead of these people on the internet. Trust me. Last Sunday, I interrupted the, I interrupted our parentheses. So, in other words, I already had a parentheses, and then I interrupted the parentheses with a special first fruit sermon, because last Sunday was the feast day of first fruits, the, the feast day that Christ uh, chose to resurrect Himself on, and uh, and that's required of uh, of me as a church professional. So I know that you don't remember anything of where we were two weeks ago. And I would ask how many of you did the homework, the advanced reading, and except I know better than to ask. But before I get us back to Judges 21, we're not going to be, this is hopefully the last, maybe one more week of uh, these special interruptions, and I have to get us back to Romans, where we belong. And perhaps you've, uh, you've heard me mention this before, but this is the best way to deal with Romans, actually. Um, it's part of Romans, that you'll understand why this subject fits with Romans. But maybe you heard me mention the uh, Monistic Philosophy website that, um, that I'm aware of. I've said it to you before. It's called uh, www.godhatesamputees.com. How many of you remember me bringing that up? Not a one of you. Wow. When did I do that? Okay, a couple of you. Good, good. Because I remember doing it. And www.godhatesamputees.com are quite proud of themselves in that uh, they have noted, and accurately, they have noted accurately uh, that at these traveling carnival barker faith healing con game, con game scams that pull into cities all over the country that are designed to fleece the naive out of buckets of money Buckets, I've been to them, and they collect money in buckets. 
huge cardboard buckets. And they're stuffed with cash and checks. Well, those guys, they travel around and they fleece the naive out of money. And the, uh, and the cynics at uh, GodHatesAmputees.com notice uh, that uh, amputees are never healed at any of these uh, traveling, healing, faith healing shows. Never. No amputee is ever healed. The war wounded specifically never come forward, and if they do, their, their limbs are never regrown. Not once. And they can pray, and they do, but their prayers are never answered by God. No known recent case. You don't know one that is recent. No known recent case. Notice how I said that. What word am I emphasizing for you? Recent. When I mean recent, I'm going to tell you, no known case within the last 1950 years. And so, naturally, the people, the authors of this website, they mockingly conclude, mockingly, I have to say that carefully because of my enlarged tongue. So I needed more medicine there. They conclude that God must hate amputees because he never heals any. Thus their website name. They actually call themselves, Why Won't God Heal Amputees? They also ask, uh, they actually declare in bold, highlighted capital letters that this question, why won't God heal amputees, is the most important question that can be asked of God. And that in itself should make uh, you aware of the sarcasm that's going to be directed at Scripture from these guys. They're, as I said, they're very confident that they cannot be defeated intellectually. Now, why does this fit into Romans? Because it does. It's very important that you understand how this fits into Romans, and eventually that's why I'm kind of setting up what's going to happen after I'm done with the special sermons that are almost complete. Um, but uh, So be thinking about that aspect of it. But this website they go about convincing themselves that they have disproved the deity of Christ or the godhood of Christ. They're convinced of it because no one can answer their question of why God hates amputees and never heals them. No matter how much prayer, no matter how much effort is put into it, no matter how many songs you sing, no matter how much communion service, no matter how much you donate to the church, no matter what, not a single amputee is ever healed. Not one. So they believe that disproves the deity of Christ. Now, I'm actually quite pleased with that last part. Not because I think they accomplish the disproving of Jesus Christ. That's impossible. But at least they know something. They know that Jesus Christ categorically declares without dispute, without controversy, as loud and as plainly as he can, without any question, that he is the incarnate God. He is the I Am. He is the creator of all things. That's what Christ does over and over and over thousands and thousands of times in the Bible. He never takes a day off. He constantly does it. And the people at www.GodHatesAmputees.com, they know that. They got that. And they won't go about trying to disprove it. 
And to which I say, hooray. I'm actually proud of them for that. They are already ahead of more than half of the so-called Christian churches today that do not understand that that's what Christ did all throughout the New Testament. If not more than that. If you don't think that's the case, read Revelation 3.16. At the end of the age of the church, at the end of the age of the Gentiles. I was talking to John and Kathy about the end of the age of the Gentiles before the service or before the lecture. Um, at the end of the age of the Gentiles, the contemporary church, the Laodicean church, will be Christless. It will not have Christ in it. They, it will not think He is God at all. It will be focusing on the amount of money that it has and not on its Christ doctrine. Revelation 3.16. But as dutiful monistic atheists... They then construct these, these arguments that they're very, very sure can't be taken apart. And uh, that's unfortunate for them because their arguments are uh, made of cards and tissue paper. And they think they're very clever. And that's too bad because it's really very simple. And what's really worse is that people, Christians, will read this and not know how to defeat it. And that's even more sad. The fact that it exists is sad because that means Christians are not able to argue against it. And that's pathetic. That is the nature of the church. That is Revelation 3.16. That's what I would expect. We have lost our emphasis on the ability to reason our way through things and we have substituted a desire to become wealthy institutions. That is the condition of the church. No offense. I could have said sorry. And you know what comes next, don't you? See, you laugh now and I don't say it. That's really good. Thank you, Amanda. Please sit in the front row. Okay, pretty soon everybody's going to think there's only one person in the church and her name is Amanda. And, and it's getting close to that, unfortunately, for the summer. That's just how it may be. But anyway, there are arguments of cards uh, and tissue paper that they think are clever. And, and all kinds of people will refer to them as if they have some special understanding and they have accomplished something great. You'll see every major uh, monistic atheist do that. The evolutionists, uh, the atheists that are in evolutionist thinking, they do it. They reference them all the time. But their, uh, their arguments are very easily blown apart by a tiny little puff of air. After all, it's tissue paper and cards. And, uh, but you need to be aware, at least, of the premises because of the book of Romans. You will find such premises helpful to understand. It's nothing new. It's quite the same monism. When I say monism, what do I mean by monism? A monist believes that he is purely a physical being, and upon the death of the physical body, the consciousness, the self-awareness, the personality, the thought processes, the memories all perish upon the death of the physical body, versus the substance dualism position that says we are two different substances, one substance physical, the other substance supernatural or metaphysical, and the metaphysical or the supernatural easily survives the death of the physical. In fact, there's not reliant upon it to exist. So one side says, monism says, you cease to exist when you die. The other side, the correct side, honestly, the Bible side, says that's ridiculous. And you know inside yourself that, that you're not going to cease to exist. See me later 
if you don't. But this is the same thing. It's the same monism. It's dressed up badly. It's attacking straw men. And all of this, as I said, uh, is, is repetitive. In fact, it's really just Matthew 4 and Matthew 12, 38. Same thing. You can find this in the Scripture. The Pharisees did it with Christ. It's Luke 5, 24. Christ asks in Luke 5.24, what takes more power? Transplanting, I'll, I'll use one of their things. One of their things is, is they want God to prove that he exists. They want him to transplant the Empire State Building, because they're a New York-based organization, I believe, transplant it into Central Park or Utah or wherever, and hook it up to plumbing and Internet. Okay, and, and don't violate any zoning laws. That's what they want. They want, they want that kind of of sign. They want a sign. Well, the Pharisees also want... They want Christ to have destroyed a mountain so then they could go, where? Oh, that's the mountain that Christ destroyed and that would prove it to them. They are demanding something from God, aren't they? They're demanding a sign. That's covered in, in uh, Matthew 12, 38. He said, I won't give you a sign except the sign of Jonah. So now you really have to ask, why won't he be their organ grinder monkey? Why won't God do what they say when they say it? Why does God resist uh, taking orders from specks and cockroaches and little tiny insects. Why does he resist that? Why wouldn't he just jump and hop like some kind of magic genie for every little whim that we want? How many times would he have to transplant a building, by the way, if he were going to do that? He'd be transplanting buildings. That's all he would do, isn't it? Somebody would con shoot that frog off of that, that rock. Okay, okay, that's not good enough. Um, uh, shoot that lion on that hill. Oh, that's not good enough. Destroy them. We'd just keep doing it. We'd have God on a rope, wouldn't we? He's not, he's not going to submit himself to your authority. Get used to that. He's who? He's God and you're not. You're going to submit to him. And his way of doing things is not your way of doing things. Christ addressed all of this. This is all of this, as I said. Luke 5.24. What takes more power? Some supernatural suspension of God's laws. Now do you know how it fits into Romans? We're going to have to study why God has laws. Because he does. We have to ask. A miracle is a suspension of a law. Now you have to understand where does the law come from? Why is the law in place? Why do I have a law of gravity, for example, that is apparently inviolable except for when God wants to violate it? Why does he have that? Why doesn't he heal amputees at traveling faith healing shows for money? Why doesn't he do it? Did he ever do it, by the way? Oh, yeah, he did it. They say it all the time. It's not happening today. Christ not only healed, grew limbs. He had soldiers all around him who had their limbs missing and their eyes missing. We're going to study cutting eyes out today. He was putting eyes in people and growing limbs all the time. It's what he did. How come we can't duplicate that? Has anybody ever seen a faith healer grow a limb on somebody? Why not? Why can't that happen? Is it because the person... Does God need our faith in order to do a miracle? I hear that a lot. Well, you don't have enough faith. 
I got plenty of faith. I have earwax buildup. I can get that healed. But I can't get your uh, new leg. You don't have faith. I got plenty of faith. My dandruff, my foot odor, I've healed all of that. Here's your money. But no amputees. You got to be able to answer that because that takes you into law. That's why I keep telling you, Edgar Andrews, who made God by the book. How many times you read it, Bill? He's not listening to me. He doesn't have to. How many times have you read uh, Who Made God? Three. Just three? I think you, 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 some chapters ten. That's exactly right. And that's, that's where we're headed. Uh, Edgar Andrews does it really. I'm going to buy you all a book. You're going to come here and you're going to have a Who Made God book. And we're going to go through it. Especially the part on law. And you'll understand how it fits into Romans. But again, this is... This is always the same. It is physical reality versus spiritual reality. It is substance dualism versus monistic reductionism. It's immortality versus cessation of existence. It's signs and wonders versus grace versus faith versus belief. It's signs and wonders versus the sign of Jonah. It's intentionality and purpose versus randomness, hopelessness, and chaos. It's the origin of law. Who made law? Why are there laws? It's the creation of time versus subjection to time. And it's actually very simple. You will be able to answer www.godhatesamputees.com easily. It's simple to answer them. It's easy as cake piece of pie. And what is that? That's right. That's another t-shirt inscription. I've been saying that for over 30 years. Ask Katrina. Okay. Where we be is Judges 21. That was my introduction to Romans 3 and 4, in case you're wondering. In case you think I don't plan ahead. I know you think that. I don't remember how far exactly we got, unfortunately, and I didn't listen. I don't like to listen to myself. I do it just enough to keep some kind of idea of what's going on, but I really didn't listen to myself. And <coughs> It was two weeks ago, and I, I know I skipped some pages of the lecture, at least two pages, so probably better repeat some and refresh and restore some. If I wished for you to come away with anything in Judges 19, 20, and 21, actually Judges 21, if I wanted you to come away with anything, it's that there's this conflict between the oath and the oath and the void and, and, and salvation. Can't say it any better than that. It says inheritance. There must be an inheritance, but there can't be an inheritance because I have an oath and a void. So I have this conflict that's going on. One, one says we've got to have an oath that of course causes the void of the nation of, a nation, the tribe of Benjamin, and yet there must be salvation for Benjamin. How do I resolve that? So if you come away with anything, I want you to know there's a collision between the oath void and the inheritance. And that's the heart of the text. That is the central theme. All the rest of it builds to that central theme. There's a no-daughter oath. 
A no daughter will be given to the tribe of Benjamin oath. In other words, as Benjamin is being slaughtered, all their women are slaughtered, all their daughters are slaughtered. There's thousands and thousands. There's 25,000 men killed in that fight of Benjamites. How many women and children were killed? Keep in mind in the 1900s, what was the average size of the family in the United States? Thirteen kids. So what is the size of the Benjamite women and children that are also slaughtered if there's 25,000 military-aged men who can fight? How many old men and infirmed men? How many women, children, little boys, little girls had to be slaughtered? I'm down to 600 guys left. No women, no children. So we have hundreds of thousands that died on both sides in that war. All because what? All because the sons of Belial tore a woman up and murdered her. And her husband knew that that was exceedingly wicked. They were doing something that had never been done and frankly, uh, I believe, is going to come back. And we will see the same exact huge wickedness. It's a Sodom wickedness. It's a Judges 19 wickedness. And we will see it again, I am sure. How do I know that? Yes. Yeah, Christ said it, said it would happen. We're about to enter into a period where it's extraordinary. Uh, woe be the pregnant Jewish woman, right? Read your Hosea. Ah, so that's the central theme. No daughter will be given to the 600 men that are left. That's an oath, and that's followed by the massacre of all the Benjamite women, and thus ensuring that the tribe of Benjamin will be a void. It'll be exterminated. There's no hope. If I won't give them any any women, they can't resurface as a tribe. They can't replenish themselves. And now great weeping comes from Israel for Benjamin. They realize Benjamin can't, they're going to die off completely. They're going to be a void, exterminated, annihilated. And they say this, O Lord God of Israel, why has this come to pass that one tribe will be missing? So removing the great evil has resulted in the impending extinction of Benjamin when coupled with the no daughter shall be given oath. Because if all they want, if they wanted Benjamin to survive, all they had to do was not do that oath. But the fact that they did the oath caused this problem for Benjamin. And now there's pleading with God. Uh, if you read it carefully, you'll see they, they go and they build an altar and they weep bitterly for Benjamin. Just tremendous weeping. They want Benjamin to survive. And they say there must be salvation for, and there must be an inheritance for Benjamin. There must be. Let me read that for you. Um, right here. Verse 17 of chapter 21 of Judges. There must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin. But we made an oath that we can't give them wives. How are we going to solve that? And I want you to know that's the collision that you have to recognize is there. That's the central theme. So the obvious question, when you see that, Benjamin had to be attacked and almost exterminated because of the incredible evil that happened that they defended. And so the evil, the sin must be removed. And yet at the same time, the Israel is saying there must be salvation. 
What's the obvious question there? Why is there any salvation for these guys? Why not exterminate them? Why does any get saved at all, ever? Why should anybody be saved? Let's just get rid of all the sin. How do we get rid of all the sin? What's the best way we can get rid of all the sin? What do we do? Kill all the people. There we go. We're done. We get rid of all the people. We get rid of all the sin. Who's the people? That's us. So anytime you start saying, I want God to get rid of all sin, what are you saying? Oops. You're, You're finger painting a target on yourself. Why are any saved is one of the great questions of Scripture. All should have been exterminated. Why did he... Why did he keep Adam and Eve? Why not just go bang and make a new Adam, new Eve? Could he have done it? But he won't. Why not, by the way? Answer it. WWW, God hates amputees, wants to know why didn't he get rid of Adam and Eve? Maybe they don't. Maybe they haven't thought of that question yet. But I'm sure they have. Why doesn't he get rid of you? You're immortal. I'm immortal. We're living souls. Why are we living souls? He made us living souls. What did he use to make a living soul? What's a, what's a living soul made out of? Consider that if, you, uh, if you're listening, www.godhatesamputees.com. Okay. So the question of how can the removal of the exceedingly great sin and the no daughter oath, okay, no daughter shall be given oath, how can I reconcile uh, that with there must be mercy and salvation? Because as soon as I said I had to remove the sin, that meant I killed all the Benjamites. And as soon as I said I won't give any daughters to them, that eliminated the Benjamites for sure. The combination of both of them ensures that there will be no Benjamites. How do, I, how do I take care of that oath and yet still have salvation for the Benjamites? And that is the, as I said, that is this collision. And as you know, if you've been here, this is exactly the same as what's going on in Matthew 4, which is the testing of Christ by Satan. He is asking Christ to reconcile sin and mercy, or reconcile justice and mercy to be more uh, precise. It's also what's going on in Matthew 26, 36 through 46, and also, as you know, in Genesis 15. God's solution to this, God's solution to sin, is Himself. It is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is His solution to how can God's justice be at peace with God's mercy? How can I exterminate but save? How can I end sin but save? That's what's going on here. That's exactly the theme of Judges 19, 20, and 21. Great sin, great wickedness, but yet I must save. And Jesus Christ is the solution to the no daughter shall be given oath and there must be an inheritance. It's the smoking furnace and the flaming torch passing through the divided animals of Genesis 15. It's the cup of Gethsemane, the death and resurrection of Christ. Now, okay, let's go to... First uh, Samuel 11. Actually, let me go to Judges. How am I doing? I'm doing good. Let's go to Judges 21.8 and read that so that you know where we're at because I think we don't know anymore. And they said, where... And they said... So they're trying to solve this problem. We can't, we can't give our daughters, so we've got to go find daughters. We've got 600 guys hiding in the rocks. By the way, the 600 guys have gone to the rock for safety. Is that a good idea? That's a good idea. 
We had 600 guys hiding in the rock, and we got to get them wives. So how are we going to solve it? Can't get many of our wives, yet they've got to be what kind of wife? they got to be Jewish. So what do they do? They look around and say, okay, who didn't come to Mizpah? If somebody didn't come to Mizpah, let's go kill them and take their wives, take their virgin girls. That's what's happening. So let's read that. And they said, what one is there from the tribes of Israel who did not come up to Mizpah to the Lord? That's where the oath was given. So who didn't come up and give an oath? <laughs> you didn't come up and give an oath. You were in trouble. And in fact, no one had come to the camp from Jabesh Gilead to the assembly. And when the people were counted, indeed, not one of the inhabitants, so they went around and they checked. Anybody come here from Jabesh? None of the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead was there. Gilead. So the congregation sent out there 12,000 of their most valiant men and commanded them saying, go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead with the edge of the sword, including the women and children. So here we go again. And this is the thing that you shall do. You shall utterly destroy every male and every woman who has known a man intimately. So they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh 400 young virgins who had not known a man intimately, and they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Then the whole congregation sent word to the uh, guys in the rocks at the rock of Ryman and announced peace to them. So Benjamin came back at that time and they gave them the woman whom they had saved alive of the women of Jabesh Gilead. And they and yet they had not found enough of them. They only found 400. We've got to have 200 more. And so they're trying to take care of these 600. We're going to end up in a, in a study of where else was there 600 someday, but not today. But you should do that. Ask Larry. He's probably already done it. And the people grieved for Benjamin because the Lord had made a void in the tribes of Israel. Okay, and then it goes on to talk about how they go and they get wives out of at Shiloh uh, of these girls and and that uh, who danced and and that goes on and they have salvation for Benjamin by doing so. And Benjamin goes back a uh, a uh, a community that once had. Many thousands now only has hundreds. So they, they had pretty good land for themselves in those days. Now, First Samuel 11. And keep in mind in the forefront, to save Benjamin, Jabesh Gilead was struck and utterly destroyed. And Jabesh Gilead had not come to Mizpah. Therefore, they had not made an oath. And so no oath meant that their woman could be taken and given to Benjamin, 400 virgins. virgins. So we, that's, that is where we're at. And this is the conclusion to uh, now First um, Samuel 10:27 on. This is the conclusion to Judges 19, 20, and 21. So let's look at this one. We start in 10:27. But some rebels said, "Why do I start there? When you see the word rebel. What do you think? What's it really mean? It really means sons of Belial." So once again, here we are with sons of Satan. We are starting all over again, aren't we? I expect this to be very similar to Judges 19, 20, and 21. But some sons of Belial said, how can this man save us? They're talking about Saul, whom Samuel had anointed king. 
How can this man save us? So they despised him and brought him no presents. And now I know that if you bring me no presents, what that means. But he held his peace. Then Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh Gilead. Oh, obviously some parts of Jabesh Gilead had survived. How many they got left? And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. In other words, the Ammonites had come up and surrounded Jabesh. Jabesh is in big trouble because they're going to be, they're going to be sucked dry. They're going to be starved to death. They're going to be no water. They're under siege. And Nahash the Ammonite answered them, On this condition, I'll make a covenant with you that I may put out all your right eyes. Now, this gets you back to how I began with Christ. What did he do? He ran into people that were missing right eyes all the time because it's what they did. He ran into thousands of people that were missing right eyes. What did he do? He made eyes. He, he had an interesting way to do it. He could have made it out of air, but he wanted to make sure that he used the dirt. Why did he want to use the dirt? Go back to Genesis. You'll figure that out. Why did he spit in it? Because he's called what? Living water. So he makes sure that you know that he creates out of dirt and living water, what? Human beings. Who is he? Creator God. So, know that. On this condition, I'll make a covenant with you that I may put out all your right eyes. So they cut the right eyes out of these guys. Is that what they want to do? And bring reproach, reproach on all Israel. Then the elders of Jabesh said to him, Hold off for seven days. We want seven days. What's the obvious question there? Well, yeah, we would all stall. Let's hope I can get something going for me. Seven days give a few guys a chance to get away. We'll have a couple of two-eyed Jabesh people at least. I'm going to cut the eyes out of everybody. How about the children? Are going to cut the eyes out of the children? The young men? Oh, yeah. Because young men grow up to be what? Soldiers, and really upset soldiers if their if their uh, brothers and parents had their eyes cut out, right? How, how what's the chances those guys are going to surrender? I was talking earlier about the Assyrians. Um, the Assyrians used to cut the arm or the hands off. They cut the eyes out, cut the tongue off, cut the ears off, and send the Israelite back. That's what they would do. Because they wanted wanted to burden the nation of Israel with dealing with the wounded. They didn't kill their captives. They sent them back like that. Now, imagine the psychological effect. How many of those kind of people did Jesus Christ come in contact with? How many hands and tongues and eyes and ears did he fix? Thousands of them. No amputees have been healed recently. Emphasis on the word recently. This isn't an old subject. Don't ever think it is. It's been brought up for thousands of years. Then the elders of Jabez said to him, Hold off for seven days that we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel. And then if, if there is no one to save us, we will come out to you. So the messengers came to Gebeah of Saul, the very place that started all of this in Judges 19. They go to a Benjamite from Gebeah. 
and told the news in the hearing of the people. And all the people of Gebeah lifted up their voices and wept. Now, there was Saul coming behind the herd from the field. And Saul said, What troubles the people that they weep? And they told him the words of the men of Jabesh. Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard this news, and his anger was greatly aroused. Now, this is what he did. He took a yoke of oxen. How many oxen is that? That's two. You seen one? I'd like to bring one in here, some Yom Kippur. How big is an oxen? A couple thousand pounds. He, he, each, whoever does, he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hands of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so it shall be done to his oxen. Now that's really weird. I hope you see how weird. That's a great treasure hidden there, because that doesn't seem to make sense. If I'm going to tear an oxen apart and ship it out all over the place, I'm going to say, hey, baby, remember Judges 19? As soon as they got that pile of flesh, they knew it was Judges 19. Here we go again. I would say, hey... You don't want to fight with me? It's going to happen to you. I can tear an ox apart. I can certainly tear you apart. That's not what he said. You don't, you don't show up? I'm killing your oxen. Really? I get a big pile of oxen part, and it says on it, if you don't show up to fight, I'm killing your oxen. I'm going, I ain't got any oxen. I don't see why this is a problem for me. Bummer. Wish I had some oxen. I don't know. Cool. See ya. And that's not what happened. Whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so it shall be done to his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out with one consent. They knew what this was, just like Judges 19. They knew it's got to go. Got to go. And we're going. And when he numbered them in Bezek, the Bezek, the children of Israel were three hundred thousand, and the men of Judah thirty thousand. And Judah got wiped out, as you remember, slaughtered, and they come again, don't they? Yay, Judah. You ever wonder why he's from Judah? Judah does some cool stuff. They were slaughtered on that first day of the war. They hardly had anybody left. And here they got thirty thousand again, and they know what? What's gonna to happen to Judah? What's what's the rule? Judah first. And they're going to get what? Slaughtered again. Yeah, Judges 19 going to happen again. But we're going. Yay. They're going again. Judah first. And they said to the messengers who came, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have help. Think about that. These are the people that were utterly destroyed by Israel. They have been back together. They're barely struggling to survive. They're surrounded. They're about to be all their eyes poked out. Who knows? what? They're going into slavery. They go to Saul for help. He cuts an ox apart. Israel responds.
Then the messengers came back and reported it to the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Tomorrow we will come out to you, and you may do with us whatever seems good to you. Good luck with that is missing. I added that in. So it was on the next day that Saul put the people in three companies. He divides into three companies. It's very important. And they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and killed Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it happened that those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, What about the sons of Belial that said that they didn't want you to be king? Bring the men, the sons of Belial, that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal. And that's a very important place. Amazing things happen at Gilgal all the time. You've got to know that. And renew the kingdom there. So all the people went to Gilgal. To do what? To renew the kingdom. What does that mean? We're going to put the kingdom back together. That means the kingdom isn't together. Who's not in the kingdom? should be able to answer that, right? Who's not in the kingdom? How'd they get back in the kingdom? A couple of oxen showed up in pieces. And they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they made sacrifices of peace offering before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced. Uh, greatly. Once again, let me go through it. I, I'm not going to be able to write it down because of the time. Once again, sons of Belial come, and once again I have weeping. Okay, I'm going to try to write some of it down so you can see it. Once again, I have weeping. Okay? Once again, what else do I have? What else do I have that's the same as Judges 19? Huh? Once again, I have this cutting of cutting to pieces and those pieces being shipped out by messengers. And then once again, I have all of Israel responding as one. They respond as one. Judah responds again. An army gathered with one as one. And then I have three companies again. Do you remember what happened in the last war like this? How did it go? I had three companies then, didn't I? I had one that retreated, pretended to retreat. I had one that was waiting, and I had one that rushed into the city. By the way, you're going to see that very similar action in the campaign of Armageddon. Once again, the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. It's the same as Judges 21. And I hope you see the pattern. The sons of Belial, the cut pieces, the fear of the Lord, the one consent, the, the war, the slaughter, or the removal of the evil, and salvation accomplished. What is that? What pattern is that? That's Revelation pattern. The template repeats. 1 Samuel 11 can be laid on top of Judges 19, 20, and 21. Get used to that. Get used to finding things that lay on top. Slight differences, but essentially the same. And then you can put the differences together and get the total picture. And just as Exodus 12, I can't say that enough, Exodus 12, leaving Egypt, going across the Red Sea, um, I'm sorry, Passover, leaving Egypt, traveling three days, three nights, crossing the Red Sea, that's exactly the same as the crucifixion week of Christ. So now let's ask the obvious questions in 50 seconds. What is the purpose of this covenant? Did you see that? 
Why would Nahash go for this? That doesn't make any sense. Why does he give him seven days? Why would he give him seven days? He's got him surrounded. He's going to kill him all off. He says, I'll tell you what, I'll give you seven days, and then when you come out, I'll cut your eyes off and make you slaves. That's our deal. What do you think? Okay, well, we'll try to get a better deal. But Nahash said, sure. Take your best shot. What was he convinced of? They wouldn't come. He was convinced Israel wouldn't come. So, I'm going to cut your eyes out and you're going to be slaves. And then where am I going next? I'm going to pick up some more slaves, aren't I? Where am I going to go? Going to Gebeah. That's why the people of Gebeah wept so much, because they knew what? We number two. Coming for us next. We're going to lose our eyes. That's why they went to Gebeah. Did they really think Gebeah was going to help them? No. They said, we've got to warn Gebeah. That's why they wanted seven days. Jabesh went to their friends and said, you got to get out of here. He's coming to you next. We're going to go back. Nobody's going to help us. We're going to get our eyes cut out. We're going to be slaves. But you guys, maybe you can get out of here. That's what was going on. And then what happened? Saul picked up a couple of 2,000-pound animals and tore them to pieces and said, send that out. And those people came. And they saved the very people that they had utterly destroyed before. So there's some of your questions. I answered a whole bunch of them there instead of just asking them. But let's do it. Why did these pieces cause fear of the Lord and the coming with one consent? Why did that make them do it? It's a little different. But they knew, because it isn't evidence this time, they knew that they had to go and fight for Jabesh and they had to fight for Geboah. I'm sorry, Gebeah. Why did that happen with these oxen? What's the oxen thing in the first place? What's the significance of, of tomorrow? Why were the sons of Belial? Saul didn't kill them. Why didn't he kill the sons of Belial? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Saul had problems killing sons of Belial. Seems to do that. He didn't kill Agag either, did he? Why does Saul say, it's me and Samuel? Because it was him and Samuel, wasn't it? How did all that fit together? Next week we'll finish it off. As the musicians, have they already come? They have. Let's rise and be dismissed.